Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Okay, so Mercury's in retrograde. Oh God. Like, things were getting weird. Things were like getting like like pre-gradey and I was like, huh. Like, wonder, wonder what's up. Like, is it just, like, weird spring weather? Like, what's the deal? And then I, I did my my one little Google search situation. Like, is Mercury in retrograde? And, well, it is. It is officially here is. through June 22nd. So, y'all have been warned. That is so long. Why? I know. I was like, that is an entire Mercury? freaking month, basically. Also, just as we're, like, going into hot girl summer. We're getting thrown with freaking Mercury and retrograde, and it's like communication issues 101, tech issues 101. Mm-hmm. Like, the nightmares are here, but luckily there's also a solution. There is. And that solution goes by the name of Prima. Prima. Maddie, what's Prima? Prima. Well, if you have been listening to our previous episodes, you probably heard a lot of words from us about Prima, and they're all good, <laughs> they're all great. But if you are new here and you're like, wait, what is Prima? Prima is an amazing company that has doctor-formulated, clinically validated, high-performance products for skin, body, and mind. They are a CBD company, and they have CBD skincare, CBD stress relief, daily stress relief, sleep relief, all the things, especially when Mercury is in retrograde. I have been reaching for Prima. Like, she has been there for me. And she will continue to be through June 22nd and beyond, honestly. But And she can be there for you guys, too, because we have a special code, limited time, 15% off offer if you use the code GIRLGOV. So G-I-R-L-G-O-V. That is right. G-I-R-L-G-O-V. I might be dyslexic, but I can spell that. So... Now what you're going to do, you're going to open your phone. I know you're already on it because you're listening to the podcast and you're going to go over to Safari, Google Chrome, whatever you use, and you're going to type in prima.co. And then you're going to go shopping, give yourself a little moment to like get away from this Mercury retrograde and you're going to use that code, which is again, GirlGov for 15% off your order. Amazing. All the things, you guys, we suggest the daily. That's their CBD capsule. We suggest Night Magic. It's my favorite skincare product they have. They are just all the rave right now. So you definitely want to hop on this train with us with Prima and go use our code, girlgov, 15% off at prima.co. Well, welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Happy Wednesday. We have a very exciting episode for everyone today because we are just continuing this march 
down the climate change road because it is so crucial to continue to talk about and we're so excited because this episode is not only continuing that conversation but we also have like a fun little I guess housekeeping aspect of it because we recorded in studio together this interview it was so fun and we were just like professional podcasters we basically were made for studio life we almost got a photographer and got some action shots like we're just really professional podcasters and everyone just needs to watch out honestly it's pretty crazy i would like to say i definitely now know my angles and which ones to definitely avoid but for things to uh (laughs) (laughs) me too that was uh that photo shoot while it was fun uh, it was extremely humbling looking back on some of those pictures. I might need to take a little class in uh, modeling, but there are some cute ones too, you know? Oh yeah, you guys are, I mean, you guys are going to get swarmed with these in the next few months. They're going to be all over our grid. This is photo shoot one, so. I wonder though, like just a little side tangent for a moment, like obviously like when you take a photo shoot like that, like we just went through it the photographer then has to really go through like thousands of pictures and pick like the good ones. I wonder if like even Kendall Jenner and like Gigi Hadid, I wonder if they have ones where they're like, do I look like that? And then obviously we only see the like Vogue-esque like best ones, but I'm going to think that also Gigi Hadid and Kendall Jenner, you know, also struggle with being humbled a little bit with some photography (laughs) pictures. You know, Maybe I not. would like to think, but like I suspect no. Not. <laughs> There's just no. I mean, I don't know. I'm not inside their heads, but. I will tell you one thing. That's what I'm going to tell myself. So. There it is. But we do have a guest. We have a very special guest. His name is William Lawrence, and he is a co founder of the Sunrise Movement. So environment, climate, organizing, activism, all that stuff kind of wrapped into one amazing episode. We're focusing on it all. Of course, like Maddie said, climate is a continued conversation for us. So we want to keep that at the forefront of everything we're doing. So nonetheless, this is another great moment to be able to take a walk down this journey and avenue and learn more. So without further ado, here is William. We are live. We are ready. Let's do it. Thank you so much for joining us. We're super excited to have you. And before we start and get into all things Sunrise Movement, all things climate change, we want to get to know you and learn about your background and your kind of journey through this space. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. My name is Will Lawrence. I am a a co-founder of Sunrise Movement. Recently, as of this spring, departed from the staff of Sunrise, but still a a loyal member and booster of the movement and and kind of plotting my next steps at this moment. (laughs) Um, But I've been uh, doing organizing um, with young people around climate change, 
I guess, depending on when you start counting for about 14 years now, 14, wow. 15 years, basically mm-hmm. half my life. I just turned 30, which qualifies me as an old, old man in the youth club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Sunrise Movement, for sure, right? Yeah. We were looking at that on the website. and It was like our elders. Yeah, it was like our elders <laughs> or something. And we were like, oh my God, we're almost an elder. Okay. <laughs> well, I started out, you know, I was part of the Students for Environmental Action at my high school when I was 15. And our main activity was hosting the the Battle of the Bands uh, every year, which was a fundraiser for, uh, you know, Love the Pokemon Society or something like that. But then I really got more serious into social movement organizing and really learned about what I'd call the social movement tradition when mm-hmm. I was in college, learning about people organizing from the ground up to make social change throughout human history. And it really kind of changed my whole perspective on things because You know, previously, I guess I had been taught the history. Most of us learn that history is mostly about old men (laughs) changing the world by fighting wars. And the idea that social movements, people organizing together, often nonviolently, ordinary folks, black, white, brown, women, men, all kinds of different people banding together to to drive history forward from the bottom was really a revelation. And so I've been just focused on trying to learn about that tradition and practice it ever since. I was involved in college in a movement around um, divestment of uh, university money from fossil fuels. That was kind Mm -hmm. of my, the first big project I worked on. And then Sunrise ended up being an outgrowth of that coming through uh, a group of leaders that were, had met each other in, in that space. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So started young, early bird special. We love it. (laughs) But in terms of Sunrise, so like I know a lot of people are familiar with it through, at least this is how I was introduced through, I kid you not, episode of Queer Eye. (laughs) They had this really amazing organizer as part of the show and, you know, did a whole, you know, makeover and life transformation, all of the, you know, the cheesy stuff that goes along with that. But it really, you know, sort of introduced me to, oh, what is this movement? What's it about? And so, if this is not the most perfect question for you, I don't know what it is. <laughs> what is the Sunrise Movement? Like, can you give us like broad strokes? Like, what is it all about? How did you found it as specifically a movement? Give us the details. Yeah, Sunrise is a is a movement of young people working to stop climate change and create millions of good jobs in the process while advancing uh, racial justice in the process as well. And um, we're best known, I think, for advocating something called the Green New Deal, alongside political champions, especially Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And we are a volunteer-powered movement. We've got 400-plus hubs around the country. That's like a, a chapter at middle schools, high schools, at colleges, and then just people you know, in their neighborhoods and cities organizing to be, be a part of it together. Yeah, that's awesome. So how let's talk about like this, how you founded it and that whole process. I mean, that is a big step. Mm -hmm. Like, how old were you? Like, what was the catalyst? What was even that process of starting such a large movement like that? Yeah, so I I had been involved, as I mentioned, in this um, movement that was focused on getting our universities not to fund fossil fuel companies. It's called divestment get them to sell Mm -hmm. the stocks that they're holding in these fossil fuel companies that are destroying the planet. And that was active in like 2012, most active in I'd say 2012 through 2015, 2016. 
and had a lot of success. There were hundreds of divestment campaigns around the country. We experienced the growth of that movement. It was very inspiring. We were really focused on training and leadership development of the people in that movement because we knew, you know, moving this money is important and it's important to say that these are bad companies. We can't be doing business with them. That was an important mm -hmm. point to be making at that time. Right. But we always knew that it was, uh, we're not going to stop climate change just by winning these divestment campaigns. We're building towards something greater, but we didn't quite know what that was. And so by the time we got to 2015, 2016, it started to feel like, all right, rubber's hitting the road here. We've got hundreds of amazing leaders around the country. Time to ask ourselves what the next step is. And around that same time, we saw actually Bernie Sanders was just really starting to take off in the 2016 presidential primary. And he was mm -hmm. taking our same message and delivering it to millions of more people than we had ever been able to reach. He was talking about the fossil fuel billionaires and their corrupting mm -hmm. influence in our political system, right? And we said, hey, mm -hmm. that's our message. And what Bernie did was he kind of helped us think about a more political movement. Previously, I think there was a big divide between people who do like grassroots organizing or campaigning around issues like climate change and people who were interested in like winning elections and more traditional politics. And we saw in the Bernie campaign the potential to break down that barrier, that you could actually tell the truth in the political arena. You could have movement energy in the political arena and then the attention that people pay to the political arena could also reinforce the strength of our movements that are pushing and pressing from the outside. And so we wanted to build something that could, you know, incorporate those two things. And mm -hmm. so uh, a group of us who had known each other and gotten to know each other, trust each other through the divestment movement, we actually said, okay, we're going to take a pause on our work for about a year actually, because we believe that organizations are so complex, you can't, it's really hard to rebuild an organization while it's already in motion. It's like trying to rebuild your ship or while it's already right. sailing out at sea. Mm -hmm. You need to come into port and get that yeah. ship out of the water. You <laughs> totally. Know? So that totally. Otherwise, we are in trouble. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's very difficult because, you know, it's so urgent. We want to just keep going, 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 going. But we had some really excellent mentors who said to us, you need to take a break. You need to be able to breathe. You need to be able to see things from a bit of a higher perspective right. and then build something that really is sturdy and can take the next leg of the journey. So we right. went through that with about a dozen people in 2016 and into early 2017. And then we, we started to share the movement with the world and invite people into it in early 2017. That's, That's awesome. Yeah, like wild and also what timing, like 2016, like we yeah. always talk transformative time in so many ways, but like for you guys to really be hitting the ground running in that moment, like even more powerful, I think, to show, you know, sort of where that mission has gone. But of course, you know, it begs the question of like, what are some of the wins that you guys have garnered? Like what success has the Sunrise Movement gotten to so far? And like, what's also like, what do you think is like ahead for it? Like, where do you see like some... Great celebrations, maybe some confetti thrown in the air, but like, actually, that's not biodegradable. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> Get rid of the confetti. But regardless, hands in the air we'll celebration. We'll get compostable confetti. There we go. 
Yeah, I, I'm holding out for the biodegradable confetti. I think <laughs> take that with So, you know, when we first got started, you know, we I, I sort of told you our mission statement, stop climate change mm-hmm. and create millions of right. good jobs in the process while advancing racial justice. And but sometimes we would say early on, our goal is just to make climate change matter in American politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because back then it really didn't. And so I I feel like we can declare victory on that. I, it's not hundred percent of where it needs to be, but we saw in the last presidential election cycle, climate was really on top of the agenda in the presidential primary. We had a race to the top among candidates to see who could build the strongest climate plan. And then right. after, you know, starting out pretty poorly in that regard, Biden actually put together a, a, a much stronger climate plan in the general election that incorporated mm-hmm. a lot of elements of the Green New Deal while still falling short of the full ambition. But he saw it as a political winner. And what the data showed is that young people who started out skeptical of Biden and ended up being in favor of Biden by general election day, the number one thing that changed their opinion of him was his climate platform and the way that Mm -hmm. he foregrounded that in that campaign. So that means, you know, climate change is mattering in American politics and it's young people who are making it matter. The other thing I'd say is that we are, we've changed the way that people think about solutions to the climate crisis. And previously, you would hear a lot of these silver bullet solutions that are so-called market-based mechanisms. Like we're just going to do a carbon tax and it's going to like shape the whole economy and we don't need to get too much into the details. It'll just all take care of itself. And that was kind of the popular approach, you Mm -hmm. know, -hmm. maybe a decade ago and and really even when we started Sunrise. Now with the influence of the Green New Deal, we're talking about something different. We're talking about the fact that Frankly, there's no way to do this without accepting that we need to rebuild every sector of our society, our food system, our energy system, our transit system. And that means investments, direct investments from the government to build the shit that we need to build. It also means regulations on negative activity to directly prevent uh, corporations from continuing to pollute. And we're not just going to leave it up to like some tax and let the market take care of it. It's too important. It's too urgent. It's too specific. We need to have a much more active role for government that is taking responsibility for the common good and and helping guide this transition to a more sustainable society. And so now that's the kind of uh, package of solutions that everybody is talking about. And now it's just about how much, how fast, how ambitious are we going to be, are the fights we're having now, rather than fights about like, are we going to have a silver bullet, which frankly wouldn't have, we would not get the job done. Totally. Yes. Um, I I could speak to that too, but yeah. No. Yeah. And you know, we actually last month, uh, the reason we reach out to you too, we were dedicating the whole month of April to climate related episodes. And so we did like cover some of those kind of like, I don't know if you even call them like mainstream policy ideas of climate change that often, like you said, like are kind of just band-aids or just ways that politicians can be like, see, like we're addressing the climate crisis. It's like, well, are, are you though? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So moving forward, we want to jump into our I have a stupid question segment. We are aware that there are no stupid questions ever, but we want to address the fact that a lot of people think they have stupid questions, but in fact, they aren't. But to start, we want to kind of talk about a little bit of Sunrise Movement and their kind of activism tactics. And so something obviously you guys are pushing is the Wide Awakes. 
And, you know, that's kind of a newer tactic I actually didn't know much about. But can you kind of explain what that is and also how effective it is? Yeah. Wide awakes are actually a very old tactic. Got through inspiration from the abolitionist movement fighting to end slavery in the 19th century. And in especially in the 1860 election cycle, when Abraham Lincoln was running, the young people would show up by the thousands outside the homes and the establishments of, you know, proponents of slavery. And they called themselves the wide awakes because they would they would keep you awake. And it was a way of just bringing bringing the crisis to the door of the people responsible. And so we've brought that back here in, in 2020 to start with and showed up outside the house's of uh, a number of especially Republican politicians who are taking fossil fuel money, who are denying climate change, and who are really the, the biggest and baddest villains Can of our time. Can we get a few of those names? People like uh, Lindsey Graham, people like Love Ted it. Cruz, people <laughs> like, you. you know, some others like this. You know, I call them the men who burn the earth because that's how they'll be remembered. Like, and so we, we brought that those wide awakes back and uh, we've been been keeping them up in, in D.C., in towns around the country. And it was a good activity, a good way to get our membership excited and out in the streets, especially during the pandemic when it was a bit difficult to figure out kind of how to how to yeah, yeah. mobilize. Totally. What what do they do when you do that? Like is it do they, you get any kind of reaction or do they just like try and just bunker, bunker into their eyes? <laughs> yeah. Oh, like what no, happens? they just say this and that. Oh, these these just just call it call us names a lot of the time and and you know the, their their commitment to the First Amendment seems to seems to erode pretty rapidly when they when when you're mm. uh, outside their driveway. Uh, oh yeah, but <laughs> I also try that to sacred driveway. There's just nothing well, more and, sacred. Like, the sacred sleep. I mean, exactly. what what a better way to get like someone's attention or like anger someone than to wake them up in the middle of sleeping? I mean, it's genius. Yeah. I mean, the only thing better <laughs> is like being hangry. Like I feel like that's <laughs> yeah, like the same, next thing. Same I'm energy, not, right? Like I'm not quite sure what we call that, but like guys, let's workshop that after this. There's some <laughs> there's some room I think for some other tactics and whatnot, but I. Discovering that was really interesting to me, and I love the history and knowing the inspiration. And I think that's really important for us all to sort of know in terms of becoming activists or becoming more involved. Is like, okay, what are some of those other tactics? Because like I, we always talk, it's like, okay, there's phone banking, there's text banking, and there's those things that are so popularized and great and effective. But like, there's got to be a little bit more creative energy out there, yeah. and some things that have obviously gotten done over the years. Well, so and like, it's like, yeah, the his- the history behind it too is so cool. Okay. But like. Let me like I think I saw there's a sign up form right on Sunrise Movement where you can sign up for a wide awake. I will fly my ass out to Texas to do that to Ted Cruz. I would love nothing more. But yeah, so that's super. Exciting. Oh yeah, Maddie is the. I mean, who isn't like an anti Ted Cruz at this it's point? Just, like, like you're not. Like, I just, there's a lot of comments we could go for that. But like, <laughs> like I'm the anti Mitch McConnell, and like Maddie's got like the Ted Cruz vibe. So like. I'm going to Mitch's house, too. Okay, good. Good. I'm not going to Mitch's alone. (laughs) We're tag teaming. (laughs) Don't go to Mitch's alone, please. I literally feel like I would get, like, kidnapped. It's fine. Everybody go alone. Bring bring your whole block. Yes. Yes. Everyone, don't go into the middle of the night to someone's house. Like, definitely bring a friend. Bring a buddy. But love that. Let him Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of, like, other terms and other things that... We should be aware of. So the Sunrise Movement sort of mentions that President Biden has this mandate when it comes to climate change and the environment. But I feel like that term also gets thrown around around a lot. But like, what is a mandate? Like, what is man? Are you on a date? Are you on a date with a man? Like, I just, you know, break it down for us. 
it means you have the authority and in fact, even an order to act on an issue. If I'm your boss and I give you a mandate to do something in the context of your job, that means uh, you could say, I have a mandate from my boss to mm -hmm. do this. That means <laughs> don't get in my way. I, this is, I have the authority mm -hmm. to do it. And so because of the overwhelming support for Biden from young people, and the fact that climate change was one of the top three issues throughout the campaign for the entire electorate on the Democratic side, Biden can act aggressively on climate change with full confidence that he has the support of the American people behind him. And he should be using his position at every opportunity he gets to act boldly on the issue. Mm -hmm, totally. Okay, so another thing you've also kind of touched on, but another big campaign for Sunrise Movement is Good Jobs for All. Can we talk about that and what that means, especially through the climate lens? You know, we've touched on this in previous episodes a little bit about just like the economic side of addressing the climate crisis. But can you kind of explain Sunrise Movement's, you know, goal and intention there? Yeah. So uh, when we think about solving climate change, as I mentioned earlier, it means we have to rebuild so much of our physical infrastructure in this country, our whole energy system, our whole transit system, so much about our food system has to be rebuilt and reinvented. There's also so much work that we have to do in taking care of each other in the midst of a changing mm -hmm. world. We have to be providing childcare. We have to be providing elder care. And we know that it's, you know, old, older folks are some of the most vulnerable in situations like heat waves and other right. kinds of weather events. And so we need to be strengthening our care economy in order to be supporting each other in the midst of this crisis. All of this means work to be done. There is so much work to be done in the project yeah. of building a sustainable society that there is no reason why anybody who wants a job should be unemployed. There's just no excuse for it in, in our mm -hmm. society here at this moment in history. And so we believe that a, a, a federal jobs guarantee, good jobs for all, guaranteed by the government, is the most elegant way to marshal the human power that mm -hmm. uh, is needed to actually make this transition. Totally. That makes sense. I mean, I think the thing that is really interesting to me is the care economy. Like that was something that I never thought about, which is fine because I work in design and the one of the things that we talk about is aging in place and also like senior living and how there's like a silver wave coming and like we're not prepared and there's no infrastructure. And it's like, okay, you think about that in one lens of, okay, we need to create systems and facilities to actually handle this, but also it's like, how do we, if we have to build something, how do we do that in a progressive and a positive way that's like, not just like a momentary, you know, flash in the pan. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do we make sure that like then for the next generations we're prepared and, you know, it's sustainable and whatnot. So I think how that integrated itself into the larger environmental conversation is really interesting to me. And I love seeing when things actually like take a lot of forms and have a lot of legs to it. And so I hope that's just like a learning point for everyone, of course. And Within that, you know, there's the jobs element and there's also the federal job guarantee that you mentioned. What exactly does that mean? Like, what does the government have to do to make that a thing? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we have lots of us are employed in, you know, what you call the private sector by a private right. company or a nonprofit that will continue and, and, and throughout this whole process. There's also a set of people and then there are people who are currently employed in the public sector employed by the government. That might be the federal government. It might be a local or a state government. What the jobs guarantee would do is it would open a jobs 
office in every county of the country that wow. is responsible for working with the community there locally, including local governments, including local community members, nonprofits, community groups, whatever it may be, to identify necessary socially beneficial work that is to be done in that county and is currently not being done. And then creating jobs to do that work. And then anybody can show up at any time to that jobs office and there's kind of like just a, a, a reserve store of jobs available that people can go and take for, you know, a living wage and with benefits and with the right to form a union like like all of us. Right. And then if they decide that, you know, then they get a better job offer in the private sector or something else, you know, a year down the line or, or whatever it is, it can leave that that guaranteed job program and re-enter the private sector and the the program is built to kind of have that flexibility to it. And just to reinforce one more point of this, I, I'd say why it's so important that the government says everybody is guaranteed a job, no exceptions. The other real benefit of it from a climate standpoint is it just permanently ends that jobs versus the environment myth that has been so mm. damaging to yeah. so long. Right to efforts to, to, to address climate change. And we can say that we're going to take care of each other and we are all uh, full stop. We're going to take care right. of each other. We're going to be able to provide for our families. The government is taking on the responsibility to make sure that we can all do that. And nobody is going to be left out in the cold in the midst of that, of this transition, because that's a real fear that a lot of people do have. Mm -hmm. Totally. No, that's, yeah, I didn't really know about all of that. That's super interesting. But moving on to just kind of talking about climate this year and just beyond and kind of the future of it all, and especially like looking at it through this new administration and everything. What can you explain what the Office of Climate Mobilization is? Yes, yeah, so the Office of Climate Mobilization was something that Sunrise has been an advocate for, along with many others, that is now actually created in the, in, in the executive branch under President Biden. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not by that name. I forget the exact name of what they're calling it, but it's the same concept. Point is, is that there is an agency which is specifically dedicated to mobilizing the resources of the federal government across all of the different agencies, whether it's the Department of Energy, whether it's the Department of the Interior, whether it's the Department of Labor. You know, federal government is a huge sprawling bureaucracy, and each of them has something to do with climate change. But it can be really difficult to coordinate if you don't have an Office of Climate Mobilization to take mm -hmm. responsibility for coordinating and making sure that our all of government effort to, to address climate change is proceeding in, in, in the way it needs to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there's just so much that can be done there and there's so many layers to it. And one thing that we did sort of discover in our research was the Civilian Climate Corps. Can you give a little bit of light to that, a little bit of <laughs> you know, sort of background and action as to like what that means, where that's going and whatnot? Yeah, so this is a reinvention of a program from the New Deal era, 1930s, called the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, which put over a million young men to work and eventually some women around the country doing work in conservation to basically like building our national parks, some of our national parks we know and love today. Smoky Mountains National Park was almost entirely built by the CCC and the Works oh, wow. Progress Administration, which was a, a related project and doing other similar work all over the country. And it was 
about conservation. It was about uh, creating opportunities for recreation. But most of all, it was a it was a jobs opportunity for people who were suffering unemployment at the at the depths of the Great Depression. So this is now a, a revitalized idea of the same concept called the Civilian Climate Corps, which would put young people of all genders, all races, to work in the project of doing all the different kinds of work that uh, are, are to be done in the process of um, building a more sustainable society and addressing climate change. Makes right. sense. Yeah. And like, I mean, I love our national park. So if we get some more of those out of my this, I parks am here. You oh, yeah. still need to do yours. I know. Look up the CCC <sighs> the summer, and the legacy of the CCC. Anybody, li- I mean, it really, it is amazing. So much of the infrastructure, the public infrastructure that we love and enjoy and benefit from today was a result of, of this direct government employment program in the 1930s. It's quite remarkable. Mm-hmm, totally. Can you also explain how like today's iteration of all of that is connected with Biden's new infrastructure bill and how that all is connected? Yes. B- Biden has proposed, they've actually already created through executive order, the sort of scaffolding of a, of a new CCC. They're proposing to fund it through the American Jobs Plan that he has proposed and Congress is currently considering. I got to say, we're disappointed with the administration in that they think that they kind of lowballed the size of the CCC mm. and we want them to go higher. So AOC and Ed Markey have introduced our preferred version of a CCC, which would put one and a half million people to work over the next several years. And it would be kind of at the scale of how this program actually worked in the New Deal era. So we're, we're fighting, advocating currently for that version rather than the smaller version that Biden has proposed. Okay, that's like the perfect segue, though, because who is Ed Markey? Can we get like a little background? I know like we should know, but not everyone does. So so Ed Markey is a senator from Massachusetts. He's in his 70s. He was historically kind of just rather unremarkable Democratic <laughs> senator, I'd say, who... Markey's you know, unremarkable. Ooh, a, few good okay. speeches, a few good issues and, and, and was kind of did have a soft spot for the environment and climate, mm-hmm. but didn't really distinguish himself much. And in the last four, two to four years has just totally almost reinvented himself as a champion of the Green New Deal. He saw... AOC and Sunrise championed the Green New Deal at Nancy Pelosi's office when we had our big breakout at the end of 2018. And he said to himself, here come the cavalry. Here comes the movement. Hmm. Here comes the young people I have been waiting for to really fight big on the climate issue. And he has become just frankly, completely, I think, radicalized by the experience of seeing young people rise up on this issue over the last few years and has become an absolutely unapologetic champion out there so much on this issue, fighting for us every single day. He's also become one of the most outspoken Democrats on other issues that are related, like ending the filibuster so that we can get this stuff done, like expanding the Supreme Court so that we don't see all of our victories undone by a conservative Supreme Court over right. the next 30 years. He's really one of the only Democrats in the Senate who's willing to say this stuff at this point. So we love Ed. Ed is a champion. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's, that's Ed. Love, okay. But Jeez, no, we are here for him. Okay. But the <laughs> evolution of that is so honorable and like refreshing that a politician can actually just like evolve in that way. Like, we just need more yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. I also kind of have a question, I'm trying to figure out how to, like, articulate this. But back even talking about, like, kind of being disappointed in, like, the Biden, like, plan and, like, you know, having critiques there. 
what is like what is your guys' approach as far as obviously we're in a very like divisive like partisan political space right how like obviously there's not going to be you know wins all the time how do you guys go about I guess whether they're you know unremarkable Democrats or they're the Ted Cruz's of the world like how do you plan or what is the strategy behind getting them brought over to you know making this change if that makes sense you know what we say is is no permanent friends no permanent enemies that's our philosophy of engaging with politicians in our experience, the thing that politicians really respond to is power. Can mm. you make their life difficult? That's power. Can you help them and advance their interests, make them more popular? That's power in politics. And so with a, just to give an example of Markey, one of the things that was really huge in, in 2020 was that he, he actually had a challenge from Joe Kennedy for his Senate seat. Because Joe Kennedy mm-hmm. said, hey, my name's Kennedy. It's my turn to put in this seat. <laughs> Don't they always do that? <laughs> and Markey, you know, people thought that Markey was, 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 was dead on arrival because you know, mm-hmm. he started out way down in the polls and all this stuff. He ran hard on the Green New Deal. Sunrise and the rest of the Green New Deal movement rallied hard behind him, and he won that primary election by 10 points. First time a Kennedy has ever lost an election in Massachusetts. So that's power, and that's part of why, you know, Ed Markey is a good friend of ours, because he knows that we can help him out. So that's generally our approach across the board. I will say that we don't spend any time trying to persuade Republicans. We believe okay. that the the modern right. party leadership of the Republican Party is, you know, it's something very old in American history, which is a party of white nationalist minority rule. They would rather right. govern for the small number of people in this country who believe that rich white people should dominate over everybody else than actually help America grow to become, you know, the multiracial democracy that we've always dreamed of and has never put right. in. So we were really focused on trying to spine up the Democratic Party and show the Democratic Party that life is easier with us than against us. But we're happy to work with you or against mm-hmm. you, depending on, on your position. <laughs> your choice. Yeah. I really thought you were going to say, instead of power, I thought you were going to say money. So I'm really glad I didn't bet on that. That wouldn't have been good for me. I mean, interchangeable, perhaps. I, I would say. Like, so. We say power but, can be, power is organized people and organized yeah, money. Yeah, that's uh, true. But, but, but you, need, you need both. Totally. True. Now, speaking of BFFs, those two together, you know, forget about it. But, <laughs> okay, we mentioned the filibuster and, you know, sort of changing the game there. But as a result, we've talked about reconciliation mm-hmm. and how that's real. Like, before this year, I didn't even know that was a thing, I'll be honest. Ten. But what <laughs> is it and how is it going to help in this particular case to get some of this climate policy across the finish line? Yeah. So I'll just say the whole thing is a disgrace. The United States Senate is a disgrace. And it's ridiculous that we even have to be talking about any of this. Because of the rules of the United States Senate, there is a rule, an arcane rule that says if a policy is uh, germane to the budget, if it has implications on the budget, then you can pass it through so-called budget reconciliation. And that only requires 51 votes to pass rather than 60 votes because it doesn't have to clear the filibuster. And so our position at Sunrise, and I think most of the progressive movement is that Democratic 
Democrats should end the filibuster immediately so they don't have to worry about any of this and they can pass whatever they want. But if they don't do that, then we have to go through this budget reconciliation process, which just is just is a way of, of, of putting together basically a budget proposal that can include a lot of different proposals, a lot of different regulations. There's quite a lot that can be included in it, but not everything we would want. And then and then once they go through that process, which involves sending it to a bunch of different committees and this and that, and everybody kind of has to put their stamp on it, then they can take a vote on the floor of the Senate and it can pass with with 50 votes. And then Vice President Kamala Harris will be the tiebreaker because she's the, the 51st vote in a 50-50 Senate. Right. Some tea. That just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, there we go. What about Senator Schumer's Clean Cars for America plan? Yeah, so what's happening right now is that we, we talked about budget reconciliation. Right. The, uh, the, the American Jobs Plan, Biden's proposal, is like the starting place for negotiations. And then mm-hmm. all of members of Congress and the Senate are, are basically saying, okay, here's my little piece of the puzzle that I want to fit in under the overall umbrella of this Mm -hmm. American jobs plan. So Schumer and I believe Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio have introduced a Clean Cars for America plan, which would just dramatically increase the uh, rate of us being able to have affordable electric vehicles and reliable infrastructure to support them, like charging stations and things like this. So it's it's a good bill. It's a bill that ought to be included in the final version of the American jobs plan, along with uh, a lot of others. Mm-hmm. That makes awesome. sense because I, well, on so many levels, but because I've been getting Snapchat ads from Schumer and it's all <laughs> him. It's the cutest thing I've ever seen, you guys. He's on a little bike and he's like, I don't wear spandex, but I'm still for the environment on my bike. And like, it is like grandpa magic. Like, I literally want to give him a hug. I'm like, thank you. And I will have to send you guys like a little screenshot of it. We stand. Yeah. Like, I was just like, oh, new perspective, new Schumer. Okay, let's see where this goes. I mean, what, though, this is another good example of what of, of what power can do. There's a why. Why are we seeing a new Schumer than we've seen? Right. Before? Right. Three letters. A-O-C. A-O-C. He knows <sighs> that she's coming up from below. He knows that she's got a movement behind her. He does not want a primary challenge from A-O-C in 2022. I didn't even think about that. He and he he started to reinvent himself about a year ago and he started running hard to the left. Hard to the left to try yep. for you try to head you mean off bike to the left. Climate. He's biking to the left. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have not thought about that and Wow. I mean, that really makes you think a little bit. But AOC, we just we couldn't stand any more. But we, I feel like, covered most of our questions. Yeah, not bad. I think the waterfront. I think, I think we think like... we might have. But can we also ask kind of what what's next for you? What's next for Sunrise Movement moving forward? What can we expect? How can we get involved? Like, give us the spiel. Yeah. Yeah. Something happening in Sunrise right now that I want everybody to pay attention to is called the Generation on Fire. It's a march, a 400-mile march from oh New Orleans to Houston. And this is being led by leaders from the Gulf South, from New Orleans, Houston, Dallas, other towns across the Gulf South. And they're marching from New Orleans to Houston to try to really demonstrate what dedication and commitment and fierce 
drive looks like here in this important year, 2021, mm-hmm. and raise the bar for all of us to, to, to get on their level and put pressure on our politicians to, to do what needs to be done here in this year on climate justice and democracy and racial justice and so many other important issues in this year, which may yeah. be the only year, you know, this decade when we actually have the opportunity to pass things through through Congress. So Generation wow. on Fire, look it up. These young people are amazing marching across the Gulf Coast. Okay, uh, so I'm going to fly to New Orleans, walk to Houston, mm-hmm. and then go to Ted Cruz's house for a wide awake. Is that a good plan? That's, that's this is my dinner. Where is he, Dallas? Uh, he's in Houston. Oh, he's in... Oh, perfect. I'm there. Talk I'm there. about convenience. Let's, I mean... Let's get the squad. We're going... <laughs> Hop in, bitch. We're going shopping. No, we're going to Ted Cruz's house. Let's go. <laughs> Amazing. And then what's up? What's up with you? What's next? You got I'm, big plans? I'm juggling like I'm, I'm figuring my life out, to be honest. I'm juggling like five projects right now. I'm I'm supporting some other movement groups to kind of think about how to replicate some of the some of the successes that Sunrise has had while avoiding mm-hmm. some of the pitfalls we've encountered. I'm I'm really but I'm most excited about turning my attention here to mid-Michigan where I live. I think over the next five years, I want my main focus to be here on on building power from the ground up here just with my neighbors and getting more involved in in local politics and local movement building is something I'm really excited about. Amazing. Well, we love local politics. We could go on a lot of rants, but we are here for it. And then I guess just before we go, as we wrap up, where can we find you? Where can people follow you on social? If they have a question, like what's, what's the contact? Yeah, and sunrise. Twitter's probably best. You can follow me at W L A W R E N ninety. W Lauren ninety. And did I get that? Did I do that math right? Nineteen ninety, born in you that know, year. You know. Oh, guys, that's the best math I've ever done. Someone I'm proud of get you. me a trophy. I mean, that one wasn't that hard, but it's okay. It's okay. It's proof that I'm an old, old man. Look, I'm 93. I'm not that far behind you. I got you. <laughs> now I feel young for the first time in years. But well, thank you so much. So, so much for coming on. This has been really fun. This is a topic that we now are just obsessed with covering and it's so necessary, obviously. So thank you again for highlighting everything, highlighting Sunrise Movement. We will definitely be keeping an eye on all things. I'm working, going to start working on my travel plans and just excited. Thank you. Thank you. This was really fun. And uh, yeah, love the podcast. I'm going to start listening. <laughs> Thank you Woo. so much. Thanks. Okay. Well, top stories of the week. We have a few, honestly. Last week was slow, but we're back with a generally heavy news cycle And starting off, we want to talk about the Tulsa Massacre, which is kind of something that I actually first learned about, honestly, and unfortunately, last year during this big racial justice movement. And this year is actually the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre. And President Joe Biden uh, will take part in remembrance of this very dark day and this day that has been forgotten and not told in history books or anything so basically we'll start like if you haven't heard of it honestly I don't blame you because a lot of people haven't unfortunately because it was really just like hidden and tucked away and not told but basically 100 years ago on May 31st 
1921 and into the next day a white mob destroyed tulsa's greenwood district known as the black wall street in what experts call the single most horrific incident of racial terrorism since slavery so an estimated 300 black tulsa residents were killed in the massacre when a white mob destroyed more than 30 square blocks of homes and businesses in greenwood district Um, again also known as black wall street there's roughly 300 black owned businesses that were destroyed black homeowners and business owners were received no aid from local government and their insurance claims were also denied so local officials only ended up reporting 36 deaths at the time but later we found that they don't even they still don't know the exact count but right now it's estimated to be 300 versus the 36 that was just reported So President Joe Biden um, actually described the vast discrepancies in his speech between the official death toll and like the real casualties. And he said, quote, my fellow Americans, this was not a riot. This was a massacre because that's the other thing that kind of they tried to paint this as was some riot. But it was just a pure, the dark and devastating massacre fueled by racism. And so despite all of this loss of life and loss of property. No one was ever charged in relation to the murders or the destruction of homes um, and businesses in Greenwood. Almost immediately after Greenwood burned, efforts began at the highest levels to really suppress what happened during this massacre. So Joe Biden headed to Tulsa, and he is actually the first president to participate in the remembrance of the destruction of what was known as Black Wall Street. And President Biden plans to unveil a set of policies intended to narrow the wealth gap between black and white Americans, including plans to offer a raft of policies intended to bolster homeownership and help minority small businesses and entrepreneurs. So definitely good to see that, you know, this is getting the attention finally it deserves. Obviously, it's far too late, but, you know, we have President Joe Biden being the first president to act actually acknowledge this which is again just devastating in itself that it's just been so hidden so definitely continue to learn and read up on the tulsa massacre and keep it top of mind and really give it the attention it deserves and tell people about it and just highlight this issue and just good progress from last year of hurting hearing about it for the first time ever and now we're kind of seeing finally some real attention put towards it which is good but so amen So over in Texas, which is run by Lord Farquaad II, a.k.a. Governor Greg Abbott, who could only be compared to Shrek's, you know, arch nemesis because he, in his first round of Shrek movies, makes the little, you know, comparison to his, you know, his people saying that, you know, some of them may die, but it's a risk he's willing to take. Seems like a Same energy. Same energy. Absolutely same energy, but like, Let's get into one of the 5 million things that makes me want to, like, put my hat in a blender. Mm -hmm. And this first thing is that he intends to withhold paychecks to state lawmakers after House Democrats staged a walkout to block voting restrictions proposed by their Republican counterparts. So a large group of Democrats walked out of the House chamber, which is in Austin, late Sunday. What a a Memorial Day weekend. Love a little... State gov moment too, right? State gov story. That is, I love that. I love that for us. I love this for this moment, but I like don't love what they're doing. And so basically, there was no quorum, which is the minimum number of members of an assembly or society, but obviously in this case, assembly, must be present at any amount of its meetings to make the proceedings of a meeting valid. 
And that prevented a final vote on the proposal, Senate Bill 7. And the bill, which had appeared poised for passage, like ready to rock and roll, would cut back polling hours. Like, why? I mean, I know why, but ugh. reduce access to mail-in voting. Again, ugh. like, I'm just going to make gross sound effects at all of these. And give more authority to person poll watchers. Like, what? How is that a thing? How does that make sense? I can't. There's just, you can't put lipstick on that pig. Mm-mm. But... Voting rights advocates say those and other provisions of the bill would make voting more difficult in Texas, obviously, and would disproportionately burden people of color. Again, obviously. There's been no evidence of significant voter fraud in Texas. <clears throat> Trump obviously. trying to push that theory. <laughs> You're going to do that again. <laughs> Shit. <clears throat> obviously. <laughs> Guys, it's going to be my new thing, you know? And basically... The fight in the Texas legislature comes as Republican state lawmakers across the country. Like, this is not just a Texas thing, but I just love putting a, a little spotlight on Word Farquaad. As they work to pass legislation, they say it's designed to crack down on voter fraud, which could have the effect of making voting more difficult in many communities. Lawmakers in several states have introduced similar legislation, motivated at least in part by former President Donald Trump's continued promotion of the quote-unquote big lie that the 2020 election was somehow stolen despite evidence to the contrary. Clarification moment. The election was not stolen. There's no evidence of voter fraud. Go home. Thank you. Please go home and just like, I just can't. To Everyone learned about Wide Awakes today, right, in this interview. I might have to, while I'm going to Ted Cruz's house, I might also have to walk on over to Governor Abbott's because I just like can't with him. Nope. Okay, well, next story. White House gives GOP one week to reach deal on infrastructure. So we have talked about this massive, massive, massive infrastructure plan that Biden has put forth. And so right now, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Sweet Mayor Pete, said Sunday, time is running short for a bipartisan deal on infrastructure, indicating that President Joe Biden will look to act without Republican support. If there is no consensus when Congress returns from its Memorial Day break. Also, like, Congress, you don't deserve a Memorial Day break, okay? Y'all be doing these, like, weird filibuster moments. Rand Paul's talking about pigeons doing cocaine. Like, just stop. Go to work. Get some shit done, please. Okay, I'm done. By the time that they return on June 7th, we need clear direction, Sweet Mayor Pete said. The president keeps saying inaction is not an option and time is un- is not unlimited here, he said. So Biden plans to meet with lead Republican negotiator, Senator Shelley Moore of West Virginia, this coming week and says he remains open to hearing other GOP senators who are working on different proposals. But Biden has been eyeing a dwindling timeline for the deal with an early June hearing scheduled on the House transportation bill that is widely seen as a building block for the big package that he favors. So... Sweet Mayor Pete, again, Transportation Secretary, said, while Republicans philosophically seem to agree that trillion-dollar investments are the kind of thing we need to be doing right now, there is a lot of, quote-unquote, daylight between the two sides, such as investments to boost the electric vehicle market, to ship Americans away from gas-powered cars, to stem greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, Republicans have been big infrastructure advocates champions they would call themselves probably through the years and this is a massive infrastructure plan and probably politically it was called that because biden was hoping it would be a bipartisan move so basically there are kind of a lot of bits and pieces in this bill that will 
address and help tackle the climate crisis. And Republicans are kind of upset about that and some other things that are included in the bill that they don't deem as infrastructure. So they've been going back and forth on this. And basically Biden is saying, if y'all can't figure it out within the next week or so, I'm going to push it through. So that's where we are on that. Again, we'll always keep you updated. But yeah. Well, we have to talk about the GOP blocking the Capitol riot probe, which just like... This is what makes me scream internally and just externally, too. It's not like there's no limit to the scream. But basically, Senate Republicans block the creation of a bipartisan <clears throat> bipartisan panel to investigate the deadly, and I repeat, deadly. Remember, people like died on <laughs> January 6th, that attack on the Capitol. But basically, the Senate voted 54 to 35, six short of 60. That was needed to take up the House passed bill that would have formed an independent 10-member commission evenly split between the two parties. The Republicans were mostly, but not totally united. Six voted with Democrats to move forward. 11 senators, nine Republicans, and two Democrats missed the vote. An unusually high number of absentees for one of the highest profile votes of the year. Like, can you imagine just being like... I'm not going to go to work today on like one of the biggest moments of probably your tenure like this is a huge deal this the insurrection on our capital and you could do something about it you could do something and you decided not to show up i mean like truly what a weird use of a sick day you know i jesus christ i mean i just and think like, grow up like let me just say literally it literally and also like <laughs> goes to show like all of the times that we've ranted about people not liking politicians because it's all about the re-election and their campaigns and not about actually getting stuff done. Like this is why people get pissed and this is why I'm definitely not pleased as I'm sure a lot of people aren't as well. But basically this stunning rejection by the GOP of this proposed commission really, really pushes home the whole concept of the filibuster and all of the struggles that come along with still keeping it around these woods if this isn't a show of that, then I don't know what it is, but it really does give some pause for those saying that it wasn't an issue or it was going to be fine. Biden is going to be able to get his whole, you know, agenda through all that stuff. I mean, hello, here we are. This is a fucking terrorist attack where people died and we still can't figure out a way to come together. Interesting. So in case you're sitting here and you're like, what is the filibuster though you speak so ill of it but who is he and i say he specifically filibuster is a senate procedural rule that requires a vote by 60 of the 100 senators to cut off debate and advance a bill with the senate divided 50 50 democrats would need the support of 10 republicans to move most bills the vote on advancing legislation to create a commission to investigate the insurrection highlighted how reluctant the gop will be to cooperate even on things with logic involved you hate to see it. So nonetheless, here we are um, just trying to give everyone amnesia. Well, that's what the Republicans seem to want to do. And not really, really sure where to go besides shake my head and say, let's eliminate the fucking filibuster. Lord, please. Like, what do we got to do to get rid of the filibuster? This is going to be a really interesting thing to watch, though, when it comes to the filibuster. There's also the big voting bill we've talked about, too, that is going to be highly debated and for the democrats to be able to pass that they're gonna have to figure out how to maneuver around or 
do something regarding the filibuster if they want to actually get that passed. So this will be something to watch, especially again, like this year, you guys, next year is the midterms. So there is a chance that Republicans can take back the House or the Senate, most likely the Senate rather than the House, but next year. And so power can be shifted right back. And so this year is the year when Democrats are really trying to get as much done as possible. So it's just interesting dynamics at play here. And the filibuster is just the cock block in the room. And it's not Mitch McConnell. And well, Ma- it is Mitch McConnell, but... It's Mitch McConnell on the filibuster. <laughs> that is not a bad name, but it could be. Yes, 100%. Well, moving on, we have a very sad story because last Wednesday, um, there was another mass shooting. And it actually happened to be literally like, just like a mile or two from my house. So Wednesday, nine people were shot and killed in a mass shooting at the VTA rail yard in San Jose, California, where I live. All of the victims were VTA employees, as was the shooter, and the shooter had a reported history of domestic violence. The founder of Mom's Man Action, Shannon Watts, said, every nation is home to misogynists, but only the United States gives them easy access to arsenals and ammunition, which snaps to that. Wednesday's mass shooting in San Jose is the 38th workplace mass shooting since 2009. Again, mass shootings are defined as shootings where at least four people were shot and killed and a victim was an employee working at at least one location of the shooting. And there were five other workplace mass shootings just this year. So it's just this reoccurring problem that's super devastating and dark and frustrating and really hard honestly to continue to grapple with and it's been it was a hard day honestly to see that happen especially when it happens so close to you but there are action items of course and thank you to every town for all the work that they do but especially for compiling this list of action items for us to you know take action against gun violence and really try and solve this problem because there's a big monster here to face and that really is the gun lobbies and so there's gonna have to be a big people power movement in order to really make change regarding gun violence in this country so there's a link in the episode description it's every town's link with actions it's just a long list of a bunch of different things you can do you can pick what works for you and let's all take some action on this issue because that's really all we can do you know thoughts and prayers and action yeah like prayers don't do like enough and i feel like it's so wild like how much like this fear goes into things and like i've never been happier to be in a work from home situation for eternity i'm like granted like you know everyone i work with is a doll but like it makes for like a very fearful situation. Like you don't No, I think about it literally everywhere I go. Like, and the fact that, yeah, workplace, I mean, you do have to think about that literally just at your workplace. They're like, my parents love to go to the movies and like, they want me to go with them. And I like, just won't. Like I have like, honestly, a fear of going to the movies now. It's just constantly on your mind. And I think everyone struggles with that. It's like really just shitty, dark situation. And it's something that I would consider one of the biggest problems we face as a country and it just they won't do anything to help it. It's crazy and it's embarrassing and I just, you know, really hope that through our action we can like make some change, but it is like so, so pervasive. I really do feel like it dictates like where you go when you go and it's like always in the back of my mind. My mind. I'm always like where are the exits? 
100%. Everywhere I go. That's and crazy. Like, yeah. And even back to, you know, the founder of Moms in Action, like commenting on just, you know, misogynist and domestic violence really almost always being a factor in these shooters. Like it's also super heightened risk for women. And there's really startling numbers as far as gun violence against women as well. And so there's just, there's, it's a scary, scary topic and dark and it's, it's tough, but action items always help. You feel a little bit less helpless. So definitely go check out that link and yeah. This man needs to stop singing. Yeah. If anyone hears singing in the background, Sam has a literal like opera singer down below her and just, just kind of tune it out. Or if you like it, maybe it's a good little ambiance. If I hear this song one more bloody time, I swear it's me out the window. But okay, you guys, that is it for this week. Please subscribe. Please rate us. Please review us. Please follow us on Instagram. We have two of them. We have Girl on the Gov. We have Girl on the Gov, the podcast. We have a TikTok, Girl on the Gov. We also have two Twitters, and that was just a mistake. But please follow us on all things. Reach out to us. DM us with all of your questions, political or honestly not, if you just want to talk. But that is all for this week, and we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.